Thank you, everybody, for joining another episode of Clear to Close. It's been a while since we've been on here. Maybe a couple month break. Is that is that safe to say? I don't know. I feel like I've lost track of time the beginning yeah. of this year, but a couple month break. I'm Alan Paris, your host of Clear to Close, joined by the Mike D and MCA to my ad rock, Brian Traeger and <laughs> Anthony Iani. At rock, I got to ask, what the hell is that? Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know. I'm, an, I'm, you know, I'm a Led Zeppelin guy. My, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat it just to make sure it's incredibly clear, and then we're gonna judge you because you don't know this. Let me give you one more time: <laughs> the Mike D and the MCA to my ad rock. Nothing AI. AI, come on. Maybe it's the Beastie Boys. Maybe yes. it's the Beastie. Maybe it's the Beastie Boys. <laughs> oh my goodness, I was losing it behind you know what, the mic. You know what was incredibly disappointing in that? So, well, so I, I think I've talked about this on the show before, but. I spend, actually, I don't spend a lot of time. <laughs> I spend some time trying to figure out famous trios. And that one was the one that I thought AI would like the most. And he didn't even know who they were. No. Now, I told wow. you, I'm a classic rock guy. To me, there's only there's only one trio, and that's Rush. The mighty triumvirate from Toronto, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Just speechless right now, so... I know, no, I, know, I know you're. I know you're more. Class, I know you're. I know you're more on classic rock. Yes, but I, I thought you would at least appreciate. I did. I think. I think you know what. What the Beastie Boys do is they cross genres because people appreciate what they did for hip hop. You don't have to be a hip hop fan to understand the impact that the Beastie Boys had. You know, and I think. And I think that's where I'm a little disappointed in you. Scary as this sounds, I just reduced my vinyl record collection by a third. So I sold off a whole bunch of stuff recently. And one of those records was a Beastie Boys records. I think it was the one with the airplane on the front of it. It was wow. it was probably the one where it says uh, the members of the of the group, Mike D, MCA, and Ad-Rock, and you never looked at that album ever. And that's why you don't know who they are. I probably didn't because because the record store up in Boulder, who I sold it all to, said, do you which have store, any which, which one in Which one in Boulder did you sell it to? Paradise Found. They were oh, very, they were very impressed with the high quality of my vinyl. They were like, "We'll take everything that you have." Wow! Great. Great. Did they give you a good price. They did. I was actually frightened at how much they paid for these. Oh my god! Uh, I need to come check out your stash. But that's because that's because Boulder has this insane hipster inflation on records that they can only get away with that price in in Boulder because everyone wants to think they're the coolest thing in the I world. I definitely believe that. Yeah. As long as it's inflation towards my my pocketbook, I'm, I'm Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm look, okay I mean, with that. we're about we're it. about to talk about it. Inflation is having a big impact uh, in everything we do, and so AI's got to take care of himself. He's got to go sell at top dollar his records I regardless do. if he if he get if that ends up gouging some poor freshman at CU Boulder and they want to get their first Beastie Boys album and they've got to spend a quarter of their tuition on it because AI won't sell it at a fair price. Like e- either way, I mean like it's the win win world that we live in now. In in fairness, I did I did sell off my Kansas record collection. I did sell off my my Blue Oyster Cult records. So Oh man, dude you should have passed them over to me, yeah. man. I would have I would have taken that Blue Oyster Cult. Kansas, we we had uh, Kansas is a the lead singer. Well, no, I learned that there's a new lead singer of Kansas. There is, uh, which is disappointing. But we we uh, the past lead singer uh, was in Atlanta in some of our family social circles. So I was disappointed to hear, but probably valuable that he took retirement and 
Spend a little more family time rather than touring nonstop. So hard to hit those high notes at a certain point. Yeah, I think it's also you. What you learn is the music industry. You got to like, especially unless you got an insane album deal. Like you got to go and tour to make money, and that's yeah. exhausting. It's the so. only way to do. That's really the only way you can make money. Yeah. Well. Anyway, back digressing. to the back digressing. Uh, for those uh, new to Clear to Close, we are excited to have you. And no, we do not only talk about vinyl record prices and, and the BC Boys, but rather we're here to talk about the mortgage industry and what is shaking and moving in the space. Uh, before we jump into the episode, we have to give a quick thanks to our sponsor and beloved employer, Maxwell, who makes this all possible. To learn more about Maxwell, visit us at www.highmaxwell.com or email us at meetmax at highmaxwell.com. All right, guys. AI, where do you want to start today? We got we got an episode on what has been happening in the past two months, yep. three months in the industry, catching up what's happened from a market perspective, from a macroeconomic perspective. Where do you want to kick things off today? You know, I think since the last time that we did we did a pod, I think you know, we've had a couple of bank failures. We've had SVB. That certainly has created a little bit of a ripple effect in what we do here for a living. And so I think, you know, maybe we talk a little bit about that. Unfortunately, earlier in this week, as you know, part of deposits dwindling at some savings institution, there was a large provider of warehouse funds that exited the space. And so, you know, we hate to see that on the origination side, but certainly, you know, while it wasn't catastrophic, you know, with the failure of SVB and and Republic, there's still some things that are happening, right? So there's yeah. still some things I think as an industry we still need to pay attention to. I think Fed came in yesterday, Fed paused, they're still going to raise at the end of the, you know, towards the end of the year. They're probably there, you know, who knows what's going to happen in 23. I mean, I seriously doubt they're gonna they're gonna come in and and drop rates next year. Yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting because I saw this morning Lennar reported pretty decent earnings, which I thought was significant. And then, but, you know, they think that people are starting to get used to higher interest rates than what we've had in the past. Their per units are, you know, they're seeing some shorter cycle times. They're seeing, I know that they're paying out the nose for, for electricians and carpenters and plumbers. And so, I mean, there's, there's, there are some good things I think that are happening. Rates are still, you know, probably higher than where I'd like to see them. I mean, it's certainly me, me a culpa. I was the guy on this very podcast that thought <laughs> rates were going to be below six percent. So what the hell do I know? Obviously, we don't, we don't hold you, we don't hold you to it, AI. I think only, yes, but it's probably Allison, Allison might find a clip right now of you making that projection, which old prediction. Uh, well, prediction, but so I mean, to, to the SVB, but, but anyway, SVB. To, to the SVB piece, you know, the uh, you know, this is decently old news, but probably worth diving into a little bit. Sure. But I think when it when it when the news first came out and then Republic shortly after, I think there was some economists making parallels of this being exactly like 2008 financial crisis, a true huge amount of ripple effects of all kind of small, mid sized regional banks. It seems like there was some ripple effect. Is your opinion that we haven't seen all the shoes drop or do you, is it, you know, obviously that's not happened yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you think this, we're kind of not out of the, not out of the woodwork yet, or do you think we're starting to see a better path of that? Maybe not being the, well, the full case. I think there's probably a few regionals that are, you know, there's still a few that are probably lurking. I think we're in a different, we are, we're in a different environment than we were in 08 or nine. I mean, I certainly lived that back then. 
where right, wrong, or indifferent, the effects of Dodd-Frank have helped savings institutions kind of shore up their finances and shore up how they, you know, how they manage their business. I think the thing that got SVB in trouble, and it's interesting, so I actually met my wife because she used to take all the notes for the bank that we both worked at back in Philadelphia. She used to take all the notes for the ALCO committee, and that was the first thing she said. She's like, aren't they meeting? And I can remember, like, and it was clear when you looked at the report that the Fed released in, in May about their failure that they weren't looking at that stuff. So so they they had a lot of internal flaws. And frankly, shame on the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, who's overseeing them for letting that slide. Mm-hmm. Because, because I can tell you, when I was at Commonwealth in Philly, they met twice a month, every Tuesday, and there were specific things that happened that that we all had to do post meeting. And so whether it was, you know, increase the price of our jumbos, decrease the price of the three, one arm, there were a variety of things that we had to do to manage assets and liabilities. And clearly they didn't do that. And why the federal reserve let them get away with that is beyond me. But I think most banks in the United States are doing things the right way. So, yeah. Yeah. That's my opinion. And I think the, but the, the, the market trend I think is, is I think, you know, it did. It did create some shift in 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 assets in, mm-hmm. in from small banks into large banks. I think you know it was around smaller lenders bled around 180, 108 billion. Mm-hmm. Twenty five largest banks gained about one hundred twenty billion in deposit. So it did have a it did have an impact in maybe not PTSD, but just smart reactions and uh, you know not making sure your your money's in a good spot and in a shift there. I think maybe I'm a little bit surprised that there haven't been more. Banks having challenges, but I think it's it seems like we're in a better spot. But I don't know if if we're fully there yet. Brian, I agree. I think you know a lot of banks, and not the large banks, but a lot of the other banks, they follow the eighty twenty rule, where eighty percent of their income comes from twenty percent of their customers yeah. or depositors. And so when you have a lot of flight where folks are leaving and going to a larger bank for whatever reason, if those 20% of people that are driving 80% of your revenues and incomes are leaving to go somewhere else, that leaves the bank in a ton of trouble. So either those community banks are, they built the relationships and they have those people so that when the 80% of their customers leave, they still have the ones that are driving their business stay. Yeah. And I think that that's a, a huge portion. So you have relationships there. So that's probably keeping them on even when the deposits are leaving. But I was anticipating that those those customers that are in the 20% are leaving and yeah. maybe they just aren't. So it goes to show that relationships are massive. They are absolutely mm. critical mm-hmm. to the longevity of your institution, specifically when you are a community lender. Yeah, I thought I that was really yeah, interesting. Yeah. And That's I good. think I'm sure it's mm-hmm. I'm sure it's heavily regional and heavily regional dependent and uh, city dependent on on where the banks are and who's feeling the most pain. I think, like, I, I don't quote me on this, uh, uh, just a bank that I've talked to, I think their state has a further state protection beyond FDIC that is more comforting and and probably had less flight than, than states that don't have that. And so I think that could be a factor. Additionally, maybe the future of small lenders. The other thing that I think is against their favor. I don't think it, we're going to feel this full drop until further down the line is 
smaller lend, smaller mid-sized banks are one of their biggest area of investment compared to other organizations is commercial real estate. And so I think you've probably seen headlines of how challenged that market is going to be in large cities like San Francisco, where there's been this huge shift to remote, big tech no longer having that those, those CRE spaces occupied. All CRE is not the same. And so probably heavily dependent on their risk and their total value based on what what city communities they're serving on who's maybe in more trouble than others. But yeah, yeah, it's a good point. So, but you know what, all this leads to inflation, right? So there's, there's scuttlebutt now that the FDIC, and I hope they don't do this because it's always a knee-jerk reaction. And that kind of wound us up with whether you like them or not, CFPB and Dodd-Frank, whether you like it or not, that's what we wound up with when we have this huge reaction to some kind of failure like that. But you know, there's some news that the FDIC wants to increase reserve requirements on a lot of banks to make sure that that finances are kind of shored up. And, uh, you know, I think it was bad. I don't know if it was Bank of America or Goldman, but one of the two houses came out and said, if that does, that's going to have the effect of of the Fed basically raising a quarter point. That's not yeah. really I don't know if that's what we really need. You know, yeah. obviously, the Fed paused yesterday. They are going to still come in and we're going to probably get a, a rate hike in July. And we at least have two more on the docket, at least for this year. The interesting thing was when they they did the dot plot, they're looking for core PCE. So for, for those folks that don't know, core PCE is the prices of all goods that are produced in the United States. And so versus the you know basket of goods and services that go into monthly CPI and PPI. But what we don't need is probably some kind of sharp move like that. And so the Fed's coming in, coming in and saying TCE is going to actually rise between now and the end of the year. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, shit, you've been, you've been, you've been raising rates three quarters of a point, half a point. Now you paused and you're thinking inflation is going to rise. And I'm going, what are you doing? So, yeah. well, I, isn't I, part of the pause, isn't part of the pause because of the debt ceiling bill also essentially acted as a rate hike. That's what they're saying, Brian. But, so but it, it wasn't, so even they though they paused, those, right? Right. And right. they have to go print that money. So like, even though it was a technical <laughs> pause, there's still other macroeconomic factors impacting rates. So it's still mm-hmm. being increased. And like you said, if there's regulations that come onto banks to have more in the reserves, that's another, like, it's not a direct rate hike, but it is a rate hike. And so you sure. look at all these factors and, and they're adding, 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 adding. Because of that, when people say that it's paused, why is the inflation rising? Why are prices increasing? That's because because there's other factors that are increasing the rates. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I got to tell you, though, I, I mean, maybe they made the right call by doing it. And then that's why Powell, you know, post FOMC meeting yesterday, he came out and he was pretty forceful. I mean, he's usually seems like he's a pretty mellow guy, which I guess. In other words, you don't want me at the helm of the Federal Reserve because I'm not a mellow guy. <laughs> and, uh, so, but I mean, he was pretty forceful yesterday. I'm a dork, so I watched it. And uh, yeah, he's like, don't care. We're going to do this. So, yeah, you know, it's interesting because there are some camps out there that are saying, regardless of what the Fed's doing right now, rates are going to still decline into the lower sixes by the end of the year. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. I just don't know what it does for us as an industry. I mean, maybe there's going to be some, it's going to spur a little bit of refinance activity for those folks that bought houses north of 7%. You know, maybe some of those folks come in and buy some, you know, 
maybe non-QM pricing declines a little bit and people come in and, and you know, do a little more DSCR, maybe a little more ITIN product. I don't know if it's enough that's kind of, that's going to, maybe I'm just going to say this, salvage the year, but I don't know if it's going to be enough to salvage the year. So Yeah, I mean, I it, we've talked about this before too. Sure. I think a lot of <clears throat> borrowers and in the industry at large is all very short term and relative short term thinking. Yep. And so now people are starting to get, as every day passes, as every news article comes out, people are getting more and more comfortable with the realization that rates might be this high for longer rather than just waiting for it to drop down to 3%. Like 3% is, that's crazy talk, you know? Yeah. 5% is crazy talk to an extent. And so I think that the, each day that these rates are stubborn and are sticking around that 7% mark for mortgages, that if there is a drop, I think a lot of people who are, are on the fence to go and purchase new homes will go out there specifically point, mm-hmm. if we, so not just, not the, not QM, ITIN and, and refi, but actual purchase volume because their relative basis is now at 7%. It's been at 7% for some time. That shit, if it drops a, a half a point, that might, that could be huge. It's a good and, point, Brian. Yeah. So I, I think that there is a lot of that. And also it could be timed with home prices. And when we, we don't know necessarily what they're going to do, but if you look around and are monitoring Zillow or Redfin or those things, there's a lot of drops right now in home prices. And that you don't know if it's a drop relative to people thinking that their house is worth more or what the actual market's paying. Like, so there's, it's hard to cut through the noise on those types of websites and listings Mm -hmm. and drops and increases and all that kind of stuff. But the point that I'm trying to make is that with inflation being high and the Fed wanting inflation to decrease, keeping rates high puts downward pressure on home prices because of affordability. And AI, you were sharing some data with me that housing is a significantly higher portion of inflation right now than uh-huh. what has been. And so if you look at housing as a key driver of inflation, yep. the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the biggest lever that you could pull, and not that anybody can pull it, is decreasing house prices. I agree with that. However, isn't isn't that really only going to make the impact? I mean, obviously you can go to extreme levels, but isn't that only going to make an impact when we actually have a uh, maybe a more balanced supply and demand of demand for home ownership and the supply that's there. Like, I think, aren't we in such a unique scenario where raising rates, yes, makes it more unaffordable and we'll see some, maybe some slight adjustments, but probably not the full of what we need to actually impact inflation because there's still an unserved demand for housing in the country broadly. I mean, do we yes. end up feeling the effects of that or does it get to a point where what you would have to make rates in order to get it to the, the housing prices to be less inflationary than it, then it, it's not actually sustainable. Well, personally, I'm a bit uneducated on the historical data on inventory. But what I do know is that we've been talking about a low inventory for 10 years. Yeah. This is the life that we live. Like, I don't yeah, know. You're, that- you're, yeah. You're, you're, you're yeah. saying that the old, maybe the old standard of what inventory health is just can't, is never going to be the case. And so. Yeah. Yeah. This is the new equilibrium. Exactly. So, but again, that's not an educated point of view. That's just me listening for the last 10 years. It's not any data proving that or anything. And so you have a valid point, 
I just I don't know if inventory is as big of a a variable than maybe we make it out to be. Well, I don't know because I mean, you have all these people that are looking for homes, right? And so the shelter index is part. And it's interesting because CPI, man, I've been following CPI for a long time, right? They never really reported on the shelter component of core CPI. But the they shelter are now, mean housing? Right? Yeah, housing. And I think it includes- like the, the most original form of- <laughs> I love Yeah, it. exactly. So I think inventory, I think we talk about this a lot, but but there's no there's really no solution to it. And what's interesting is, is- now we're coming into an election year, right? How are we going to solve the, the affordability process? You know, we just had a new mayor elected in Denver. What was the first thing he said after he found out that he won the election? I think we're he said, go build... Denver Nuggets, right? Actually, he did. Go Denver Nuggets. That's true. So <laughs> although I'm still an unabashedly, unashamed Philadelphia Eagles, Flyers, and Sixers fan. I'm really sorry, listeners. So. Go ahead. But, but screw the Phillies, I guess. Or <laughs> well, you know, someone has to suffer in my worldview, and it's going to be the Phillies. You were you were pretty you're pretty a proud Phillies fan when they uh, beat the Braves not long ago, but now that's kind of well, gone away. But you know, but this is the problem. This is this is what those of us from the city of brotherly love have to live with. You love a team until you hate them. Yeah. Right. And so right now, hate's a strong word. I just like the Phillies right now. Yeah. All right, so so what did what did anyway, Mr. Mayor say? So what he said was is hey, thanks for voting for me. We're gonna build fifty thousand, you know, new affordable housing units in Denver. And I'm going, really? Have you looked at your regulations on trying to build a new house? And oh, by the way, where are you gonna build them? You know? Well, affordable housing isn't necessarily it's not new houses, it's primarily coming in the form of apartments, right? No specifics. That's the thing. And, and so I, I think what I'd like to see from our elected officials is, is don't give me, don't give me, hey, we're going to do all this work. Tell me how you're going to get there, right? You're going to work with, let's use, let's use Colorado housing here. You're going to use Colorado housing. You're going to use, you know, a couple of months ago, we just had, help me out guys. Um, the group that was, that's building houses in, in South America. Yeah. So, I mean, oh, they, a new, oh, new story, yeah, new story, new story. Yes. So great story there too. talking to folks like themselves who are on the cutting edge of trying to build these affordable houses for people and getting people under under a roof. I mean, to me, that has a lot of merit to it. Don't show me your teeth. Give me give me something to bite in. That's going to show me how you're going to get there. So to be so, interesting. So what you're saying, what you're saying is this, the the cure for Colorado housing affordability and access is to tell them to move to Mexico where a new story is built. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is we have to come up with a, you know, we can't just keep talking about it. I think we all have to work together to try and come up with an appropriate solution. I mean, I'll, I'll admit this right now. I actually sent them a message and said, I have been in the mortgage business for a long time. I'm happy to help you. Yeah, man. I think, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a fair push. I think, and I think it's a consistent theme. I mean, you look at, you know, I'm not, I'm going to just go based on, and, and if a listener heavily disagrees, we would love to tell us. Have, have you on and tell us, but you look at a state like California, where there's a lot of talk of solving housing affordability and very, very little has come to fruition to actually make an impact. And I think that's consistent in a lot of programs and announcements from, from politicians on this issue. I think so many cities are in, encountering it. And very little, actually, I feel like has action to make a difference. But yeah, Brian hit the nail right on the head. And Brian's being nice about it when he's saying we've been talking about this for 10 years. It's been longer. Yeah, we just we just can't seem to solve that. So 
I'll be interested to see now that we have people on both sides of the aisle jumping into the, you know, into the presidential race, what they're going to do to to address some of these issues. And, and that's the, you know, and it doesn't like, have any merit to it. That's the, I think it's the fundamental problem because, you know, no one's focused on that necessarily yeah. because we're capitalists. Like a lot of affordability problems are for folks who aren't in housing right now, aren't buying houses. Yeah. So like, it's a huge bet for a company to go and invest and do all these things to help people that he have no idea if they're going to enter into the space. That's why you do need the government to help. Like you hundred percent need an institution to go and help that way. When we're talking about the mortgage industry, that's all capitalism, right? Like that's all everyone trying to make a profit. So what they care about is people who are buying houses right now or want to buy houses right now. Right. And so their affordability is a much different question because they either already own homes or they have the ability to today. And so that's where interest rates and home prices are the two main variables for their affordability. Mm-hmm. I guess income, of course, is a huge one too, but let's just assume that people have steady income. Well, Alan, you talk to, and you're, you know, in your multiple functions here at Maxwell, you talk to a lot of lenders, right? Does the subject, does it come up in those daily conversations that you guys on your side of the house? Have? I, I mean, not, I talk not directly, not as much as you do. Not, no, not directly. I mean, I think the the vast majority of lenders don't think about it from, or I don't want to speak for them. I think in our conversations, don't broach the discussion on a need for more affordable, more supply in their areas. It's just viewed as what's the volume going to be. Yeah. Um, and that volume can get is going to become bigger when rates are lower and it's going to be worse when rates are higher. So it's, it's, I think it's not viewed as from a macro perspective of here are core things that need to adjust in my community in order to drive significant volume. Cause I think maybe to Brian's point, it's such a, it's such a long-term issue to solve. Like it's, it's, it's not impacting today's PL. And so how much thought and how much care do you give in that, that piece of the solution? It, I think is generally the theme that the yeah. theme that I get out of it. Yeah. It's always, it's always, it is when I do have the opportunity to talk to lenders. I do ask that question because I'm always interested to see, because, you know, our business folks that work in our business are mindful. I think they're, they're smart, they're nimble. And so I'm, I'm always curious to see what they're thinking about this. Cause it's an age old problem. It's been around since I got in. So probably yeah, around I, long after. Yeah. I think it's, I think it, you know, to, to, uh, I want to be clear. Like I a hundred percent agree. I don't, I don't think them not bringing it up in conversations doesn't mean they're not being that they're they're not being smart about it by by not bringing it up. It's it's just a it's a I think it's a hey say you get that say mm-hmm. make a, a massive change in that that's not going to be felt for three four more years whatever it yeah. is like it's yeah. it's there's bigger problems to solve or there's there's more things that they control can solve in in a short time frame Brian yeah so I think a constructive thing that we could talk about real quick is you know what can lenders do to fill their pipelines with leads. Mm. You had a fun experience with this. Yes, you did, Brian. (laughs) Tell us about that fun experience. I'm going to try and keep a smile on my face during this one. I'm going to have a smile on my face this entire time. So (laughs) So we're going to start this little section with what not to do. (laughs) And it was, it was funny. So being in the industry, you know, gives some like advantages of what's going on with leads and understanding how, how it all originates, how it all happens, how the system works. So my wife and I got pre-approved for a loan and the 24 hours after getting pre-approved, which was included a a credit pool, hundred 
phone calls Ugh. to my to my wife's cell phone number in 24 hours. 100. AI, you were talking with somebody else who we work with, and she yep. did. She went through a similar process recently, maybe a month or two ago. Yep. 150. 150. Calls. I was even answering her absurd. phone, being my total obnoxious Philadelphia guy that I am sometimes. And, <laughs> and, and let's be let's be very clear Amazing. on this because this you want to talk about grinding my gears uh, oh. from from a from a customer acquisition perspective. Let's be clear. This is not you going to a shop and compare website no and wanting to sh- uh compare rates correct this was you went and got pre-approved with my brother with my brother's with, a loan officer got it with, with one my brother. We, we won't say we won't say the company because they're not responsible for it but with one right. lender and ultimately what happened is data was triggered that you had a credit poll mm-hmm for a mortgage, yeah. For a mortgage, mortgage, right? And that there are lenders all across the country who buy that information and dial for dollars yeah. trying to convince you to leave that lender and go to another lender. That's exactly right. And it's all sorts of companies. It's not one company calling her 150 yeah. times. So in the middle of feeding So it's not daughter, one more, yeah, yeah. In the middle of feeding my daughter that morning, my wife comes in and says, Hey, can you at least like talk to one of these people? I say, Absolutely. I'll trade you baby for phone real quick. So I get on the phone and this guy says, Hey, I'm XYZ from, I'm a mortgage broker and I received your loan application. I said, sorry, I didn't apply with you. He said, Oh yeah, you did. Well, no, I didn't. So that was the first lie he told me. Second one was Actually, what happened was, is we are partnered with the credit agencies mm-hmm. and then the credit agencies, a strategic partnership, a strategic partnership with the credit agencies who give us leads and they give us leads when borrowers are getting mortgages and the credit bureau realizes that there are better deals out there for you. And we are their preferred partner on getting you a better deal. I said, wow, that's fascinating. Because I haven't even gotten a loan estimate yet. I haven't even picked a product. I haven't been quoted rate. How can you be a better deal than no deal? And, and this guy's like, oh, blah, 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 blah. and then so I was like, that's the second lie. And the third lie, of course, is you don't have a strategic partnership with the credit agencies. You're scraping their data. Or you are monitoring some stuff that I didn't give you permission. And so by you harassing our phones, you're you're being predatory. Like, what are you doing? Absolutely. That got him super defensive. And he started to yell at me and I go, hold the, at this point I'm having, go ahead, Brian, drop it. Say it. No, I'm not saying it, but I'm just having fun with it at this point because he's trying to convince me that, that we need to get alone with him. He's yelling at me, telling me I'm wrong and that they're, you know, actually, we did submit a loan application with him and that we did that they do partner with the credit agencies and they can save us money. And then I just was like, I, I opened the hood and was like, Hey, I, I know exactly what you're doing. Like I'm in the industry, like, and, and the guy just Stop. kind of folded and then hung up. And then, so, and then we so, got a hundred, they got 99 more calls the rest of the day. It, it's unbelievable. I'm truly speechless. What's best about this, Brian, is that is say it was when you you when you eventually close on your loan, 
you'll still have to pay for that credit report that gave you that beautiful experience uh, without <laughs> yeah. with getting 150 calls. So that'll that'll yeah. that'll be fun. You you you're going to technically pay a uh, pay for something bucks for uh, for that wonderful experience you had. Ironically, Brian, you must have triggered this because I don't know if it was the CFPB that came out with this headline or if it was something from out of I wish I could of, move markets like that out of <laughs> Congress. Well, I don't know. You may have because I saw something shortly after that that said they're going to try to address this issue because people like yourselves and like our, our co-worker just had they just had a horrible experience with with this. So they're going to they said they're trying to look in to see how they can stop that. I don't know. That would be is it is it is it is it the credit bureaus who are authorizing this as another revenue stream, or is it someone who's scraping public data through credit bureaus that it's like who's authorizing this? How's this being facilitated? It's technology. This is the bad thing of technology. There are technologies that you can go and lease their software that scrapes all, all this information on the internet that will then ping you for when. And I don't know how they get like me and my wife's information, but when people are doing, yeah, that's what that's what I'm confused by is where is where is the scrape? I understand that they could, but where's the scrape happening of well, Brian? Oh, like where's yeah, yeah? yeah. I think I the credit I agencies can do that. I think they can sell your information. I think if yeah. that is the case, which we need to do some research to figure. Yeah, this we out. do. Maybe, maybe this will be. A, I should know this. We'll, we'll shift. We'll shift clear to close to being a investigation podcast because that's yes. all all the rage now on this crime that's happening. So, I mean, yeah, it something needs to happen because if every time you go and get a pre-approval, you're going to get blown up for a week with 300 phone calls because it didn't continue throughout the end of the yeah. week. It puts such a bad taste in the borrower's mouth. Like, ew, I'm never mind. I don't want a mortgage. Yeah. Like this is so annoying, you know? And then, oh, so don't do these things. Don't get like technology is good, but there's also technology that is bad. So don't go and, and be one of these mortgage companies who's just going to be one of the many people who's calling you saying and then lying to them on the phone. Well, it's what's even worse, Brian, is the guy guy thought it was a good strategy to yell at you. Gee, that's, yeah. a, that's a great way to get you fired. Up, yeah, <laughs> I know it was. I, oh, yeah. I brought up the Better Business Bureau. So another I need to investigate what he said to me. He's like, you know that people just pay to get on the business better business fear that it's not even an actual thing. Like you can't get in trouble by them. And I was like, mm, bullshit. This joker. And so, that, and then he, and then he argued me with that. It was, it, it, I wish I recorded that thing. It would have been so funny, but like leads lead generation, right? Just think about that situation and don't do it. And it was yeah. nice actually getting, I think I got to like, I don't really like mail. Actually, I hate mail. But I did get a mailer from my bank that said, "Hey, you know, if you guys are if you thinking about getting a house, talk to us." Like I understand being a customer, and them having mm -hmm. that information of if I'm doing a credit inquiry, you can reach out to me. I like that. But when you're a random and try to pretend that I'm your customer or things like that, it's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, definitely, man. That's some experience, but yeah. Well, hopefully they get it addressed, right? Because again, that's what sours people on the industry. So when you tell people that you're doing this, they're like, oh, you know, you're, yeah. and you're not alone, right? On, well, on and that sours the industry and the specific company that you're going and getting your loan with. Because mm -hmm. when I talked to my brother, I, I pre-approved with, he says, yeah, I, a lot of customers I talked to call me the day after 
So he's preemptively saying, hey, you're going to get a lot of calls. It's not from us. We don't do anything with your data. So he's like preemptively protect himself and his company. That's he didn't realize it was like 100 phone calls in the That's first awful. day. But like, how bad of how bad is that for our industry to say, hey, you want to get a loan with me? Just as an FYI, when I pull your credit, you're going to get 100 phone calls tomorrow. But they're not my phone calls. We're not selling your data, but it's going to look like we did. See, moral of the story, sell all your vinyl records, pay cash. That's right. Pay <laughs> cash, baby. Oh, man. AI. That's great. Uh. Oh, my God. All right. I'm sure you guys will be shocked. I don't know if you could hear the thunder, but it's once again raining in Colorado because we haven't had enough cold weather. Dude, I, I loved it last night. That we'll, we'll, end this, we'll end this recording in a short, a short manner, but in Colorado... Beautiful sunny day for some of the day. I know you guys have had a lot of rain lately. A but little thunderstorm coming in from the mountains yesterday was quite welcomed in my book. So yes, the, the light either. show last night over Denver it was wild. From, you know, from the house was nuts. It was wild. We've had yeah. some. We've had some good ones. So yeah. anyway, it's like being back uh, seeing Pink Floyd in '78. I wish. <laughs> I wish, man. <laughs> had to get it in there. All right, Traeger. Anything else? Where are we at? No, man, I got that off my chest. I feel good, good now. We should, we should, what we should do is we should make you go through that process again and do a live on the podcast speakerphone edition of be talking, to, talking to one of these jokers. <laughs> that would be amazing. Allison, our producer, do you think we could make that happen? She's this time she's we'll have to have Allison. She she let's do it. I don't, I don't think Allison I could subject my wife to getting pre approved again. Well, maybe it's my turn, or maybe we can get we can get Mrs. Ianni to do it. There we go. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a wrap for another episode on Clear to Close. Glad to be back. Appreciate the patience in us stepping away for a bit. We had a few things come up. However, we are glad to be back on the mic. More consistent episodes to come. Uh, so, so stay tuned on your favorite uh, place to digest podcasts. We'll be sending out some more episodes shortly. As always, give us a review on what you thought of the episode. We strive for five-star reviews. AI mentioning that he has yep. the Beastie Boys is probably going to degrade that chance of five-star reviews, but shoot us over what you thought. Uh, really I'd sorry. love to hear uh, and engage with our audience. And as always, thanks again to our beloved employer and sponsor, Maxwell, for making this all possible. Again, visit us at www.highmaxwell.com or email us at meetmax at highmaxwell.com. Brian Traeger. With AdRock MCA and me, Mike, D. D. Oh my God. Go All check right, out I'm... Paul Revere right now, AI, and get back to me. I will. I will definitely do that. I'm writing it down. Paul Revere. Not the guy that was running through the streets, the streets of Mulberry Street in New York. The British are coming. The British are... Never mind. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> you have to find out. You got to read there the lyrics go. and everything. I will. We need, we need to cut this off. This is going right. downhill quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, See everybody. Thank you. Guys. Thank you.